are so honored to have many of you with us. Some of you are visiting. Uh, we understand that several of our sister congregations have um, very treacherous roads out in the county, and we're glad to have some visitors with us today. But uh, we hope that you will be safe going home and that uh, you can be able to come and worship with us and visit with us once again. I feel as if I need to do a little bit of background for our lesson this morning so that you will know where we have been and where we are going. Over the past eight weeks, we have studied the book of 1 Thessalonians with the thought in mind that this is a church that everyone would love. The Apostle Paul looked at that congregation and expressed to them his deep appreciation and his love for them because they were faithful children of God. And I tried to take those eight lessons and be able to apply them to what I believe are some great characteristics within this congregation. But I wanted us to move into 2 Thessalonians and to look at those three chapters, recognizing that there is a difference in the purpose for which this letter was written. It wasn't written just to be able to tell them how great they were, even though he does do that. He talks to them about when problems come. And the truth is, is that every church will face some kind of problems. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When problems come, how are you going to handle them? And you've got to realize that all kinds of problems can arise within a local congregation. And in fact, if you really want an outline of the book of 2 Thessalonians, it will be, number one, chapter one, persecution coming from worldly folks. People on the outside, people who do not love God or even know God, so to speak, will hate us because of who we are and what we are, and they will persecute us. When you get to chapter two, you find a panic from misunderstandings. There are people who have heard something and in their mind and in their misunderstanding they have gone much further than ever intended and problems arise when misunderstandings occur. And then you get to chapter 3 when you have personal failures in the lives of worldly Christians. We all know that happens. We all know that there are people who have allowed the world to possess them in their lives and influence them. Of course, the question comes is, how do faithful churches respond to these problems? We know they're going to come, but how do churches that are good, faithful, sound congregations respond to problems like this? Well, when you have persecution that arises, you draw comfort in relying on God's nature. God knows how to solve the problem. God is capable of handling all the difficulties that you and I will face if we will but allow him to be God and to do what is necessary. And then we correct misunderstandings. We correct error by teaching. We take someone who has had a misunderstanding of God's word and of God's plan and then you provide them even more teaching. And then you express a caring concern for those who've fallen away from God. What do you do when brethren become worldly? Well, you've got to show some concern. In fact, in chapter 3, caring enough to correct. 
I want to point out to you just a few passages of Scripture which draw attention to the fact of problems arising. You go to John chapter 16, our Lord is still assembled with his disciples, most likely in that upper room. He's tried to provide them the reassurance, the encouragement, that even though he was going to be betrayed that night, and even though he was going to die, he still gave them some encouragement. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Even in the face of the difficulty, Jesus said, I've overcome. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, if you'll remember, when we were going through that section, Jesus said, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it has happened. And you know, the church there in Thessalonica understood what pressure comes from every side. But you know, when I look at it, I can either respond by saying, Why me, O Lord? Why did this happen? Or can I say, What can I get from this? What benefit can I derive? In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he says that not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. It can make us stronger. It can make us better. In Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, he will talk about people who learn to be patient in tribulation. But then as you focus on me as a person inside that congregation, how do I respond when these tribulations do come? In 1 Peter chapter verse 20 he talks about people who are beaten for their faults he says if you take it patiently you really just deserved it but if you take it patiently because you did good he said this is commendable before God in chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 he talks about people not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling but he says know that you were called to this that you may in Inherit a blessing. And then in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, he really brings it all together and he says, particularly verse 17, for it is better if the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Yes, we're going to suffer some persecution. We are going to suffer some difficulty. But how are we as individual Christians, how are we as a congregation going to face it. Well, let's look at first or second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at three things in this chapter. Verses 1 through 4, he's going to talk about the reputation that they have developed, one that was deserved a good reputation. Then beginning with the last part of verse 4 going through verse 10, he's going to talk about a retribution of God. How that God will make things right once again. In fact, he uses the word to repay. And then finally in verses 11 and 12, he's going to talk about a resolution. How that all this will be brought together as God intended in the end. 
So let's take our Bibles now. Let's begin. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for all your or for your patience and your faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now there's so much within that. In fact, I almost made a sermon out of these first four verses because as you look, you begin with Paul, Silvanus, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I could just spend a lot of time talking about those three men and their interaction among the churches of Macedonia. When you study, for instance, Acts chapter 16 and 17, you realize these three men were going together from city to city and they go to Thessalonica and you realize the trouble that they endured there. But I'm not going to go into detail, but just simply point out to you that they were obligated to God to thank Him for the Thessalonians. We are bound to give thanks to God always. Bound means we're obligated. Do you realize that when someone is a faithful child of God, you ought to be thankful to God for them? And then he uses these words, as it is fitting. It's appropriate to do that. When we bow our heads in prayer, either in a public assembly or in our homes, we ought to be thankful when we have godly elders. We ought to be thankful when we have good, sound, faithful Bible class teachers. We ought to be thankful when we have those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ who offer that encouraging word, who help us through difficult times. They had deserved this reputation. They had earned that reputation. Paul speaks, for instance, of their faith and love, both abounding and growing. You know, it's, it's, you look and see a person, this year their knowledge of God's Word, their trust in God, their strength seems to be you know, small, but it's growing. Next year they're a little stronger. Pretty soon they're leading because of their faith and their love. That's the Thessalonians. And Paul says, I have boasted of you to the other churches of God. You know that you have arrived to a point of maturity when God can, or Paul, and even God can use that person and that congregation to say they're a good example. And you know, as I go through the Bible, I see churches that had earned reputations. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, those first few verses, he speaks about, for instance, Moreover, brethren, we made known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia, that's Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. Oh yeah, that's 
these brethren here. He says that in their great trial of affliction, their abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. Paul speaks about a church that had earned a reputation of being a giver. They wanted to give. In fact, he says, For I bear them witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift. What a group of brethren. But do you know when you go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and you look at verses 1 and 2, Paul says when it comes to ministering to the saints... It's superfluous, it's unnecessary that I should write to you knowing your willingness of which I boast of you to the Macedonians. What did Paul say when he arrived in Macedonia? The brethren of Achaia have been prepared for a year to help. You see, good churches earn reputations. Sometimes, though, the reputation is not deserved. Sometimes people earn reputations because they have people fooled. I could spend a lot of time looking at the churches of Asia found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but for just a moment let me draw your attention to the church at Sardis. The last phrase, he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. You're a congregation that is not doing anything. You see, churches develop reputations. And the church at Thessalonica, Paul said, we boast of you, your faith, your love everywhere we go. They had handled with patience and faith the persecutions that had been placed before them. I like the way the Hebrew writer puts it in Hebrews 10.36. For you have need of endurance, you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise Folks that keep on remaining faithful and loyal and true even though the troubles are all around them. Which brings me to the second part. Let's pick up now with the latter part of verse 4 and read through verse 10 and see the retribution. Paul says that your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest, with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, 
because our testimony among you was believed. Now, let me begin by saying there's no way to cover all of that in a lesson such as this, unless we want to just slow down and take it sort of passage by passage. But let me point out to you that in this passage, the focus is upon God's judgment because what had happened to the Thessalonians. God is always a righteous judge. He's fair. He's equitable. He gives man what he deserves for just a moment. Consider, for instance, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Paul is at the very end of his life. He says, finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. He's a righteous judge. When you go to Romans 11, Paul's looking at Jew and Gentile and he's looking at the obedient and the disobedient. And he says, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Oh, you mean God has a good side and a severe side? He certainly does because he's a righteous judge. He gives man what he deserves. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, therefore know that the Lord your God... He is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for thousands of generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with those who, who hate Him. He will repay to His face. I want you to understand for just a moment God is a righteous judge and His judgment is on those who inflict persecution on the righteous ones. You see, if you begin by looking at I'm a persecuted person because I'm serving God, God said, let me take care of it. Let me right the wrongs. Let me provide the retribution to those. In Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You mean that's not my place to try to right all the wrongs? No. I don't know everything God knows. I don't know how much punishment every sin deserves. God does. Hebrews 10, 30, We know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. He's the only one who's in that position, not me. And I know that God will be just and fair in the way He meets it out. On Wednesday evenings, we're studying the book of Romans, and just recently we covered the first part of the book of Romans, chapter 2. And we observed how God would look at those people who were righteous and He would reward them, those who were wicked and He would punish them. And you come down and you look, I'm going to just skip a lot of this, you get to the last verse, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. God is able to step back and He's able to look and see who does what and He will be fair. And to you who are troubled... Rest with us. There's a very important word, rest, right there. Rest means that you no longer have to be involved 
in the conflict. Here's a man who's out here who's a firefighter and, and there's, there's a building burning down and he's been standing there holding a hose and he's been trying to put out the fire and he's exhausted. And one of his fellow men come and tap him on the shoulder and he says, okay, it's time for you to rest a while. Give me the hose. Let me do the job. And he goes and he sits down and he begins to catch his breath, begin to try to renew his energy. God expects people to rest. Mark 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Come apart and rest a while. It's time for you to, to take some recreation. The question comes up is, when do you and I get the rest from the tribulations? At the Lord's return, not before. In Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and He will reward each one to His works. Everyone will be repaid for what He has done. And when you think about the retribution that occurs, when God comes focusing on those wicked ones, He's going to come with His mighty angels. You know, I try to visualize mentally, and that's, there's, there's word pictures here. He's going to come with His mighty angels. How strong are they? In Psalm 103.20, Bless the Lord, you His angels, who excel in strength, who do His word. These are the angels who are capable, if God, for instance, as in Isaiah chapter 36, the 185,000 of that Assyrian army, the angel took out 185,000 men in one night. Can these great angels who will come with Jesus Christ do His will? Absolutely they can. He says, in flaming fire. Oh, there's so much in the Bible about fire and punishment and hell. And Matthew 25, 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know what that is? That's hell. That's a burning fire. And 2 Peter 3, 7, The heavens and the earth which now are preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Verses 10 through 12, he talks about this world's demise, its end, where it's going to be burned up. All the works and in it as well. Now stop for just a minute. If you've allowed your mind to drift, if you've not gotten your focus, I want to focus it back again for just a few minutes, folks. Very, very important statement here. Who are the ones that he has in mind that when the Lord comes again in flaming fire with his mighty angels, who is it that he is going to render this vengeance upon? He states two categories. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. 
when you think about that, that ought to make some of us shudder. That means that this man out here who is not heard and learned is going to be lost. That means that those of you who are sitting here who've not yet obeyed the gospel, you are lost. In John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In Romans chapter 1, he's talking about those people who don't know God and how it affects them. And he says in Romans 1 verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We have so many people today who don't even want to acknowledge God. In fact, verse 28, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They put Him out of their minds. Let me shorten this. When you study Romans chapter 10, you back all the way back up to about verses 12 and 13, and he talks about that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he begins a sort of reverse view. He says, well, how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard or believed? And how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they are sent? And you get to verse 16 and he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now here's the problem, folks. Not everyone believes what the Bible says about God, about His Son, Jesus Christ, about His church. And about what you ought to do to be saved. People have got their own ideas in mind. In fact, you back all the way back up to the beginning of that book, chapter 10 of Romans, and he talks about those people who, because they would not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, invented their own plan of righteousness. Let me quickly now go to the third part of this lesson. Let's go to verses 11 and 12. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of His calling and to fulfill all the pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith and power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. To be worthy. Now, for just a moment, I want you to think about the end of time. And I want you to think about the life that you have lived and how all this is going to resolve itself. I mean, here you've lived your life. It's a day of judgment. 
and here you stand before God, and here's the resolution of your case. How's God going to look at you? Let me remind you verses 5 and 11 again, at least the phrases within them. Verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Verse 11, that God would count you worthy of this calling. Oh, do you mean God is to look at me and to see whether or not I am worthy? Well, let me take you to Revelation 3 and verse 4. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they walk with me in white. Now, this is what Jesus said, for they are worthy. In Hebrews 11 and verse 38, talking about the faithful ones to whom all this faithful activity has belonged, he said the world was not worthy of them. Are you counted worthy to stand before God and His kingdom? Well, if you do that, you're going to have to seek God's glory. That is, the glory of God should be manifested in your life. People should look at you and be able to see that you are walking with God, living with God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Make sure your life reflects that respect of God, that honor of God. And then God will reflect that in you. I like the way Paul puts it in chapter 2, verse 14. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You mean that's something I get? Something I receive? Absolutely. You see, if I glorify, I honor God in my life here, God at the end will give me a glory, an honor, on the day of judgment. But do you see again what he tied with it? The gospel, the good news. The godly will suffer persecution. In fact, Paul told Timothy, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We as individuals and we as a congregation, if we're doing what's right, we'll stir up the animosity of this world. The godly, though, will respond by respecting God's ability to right all wrongs. When we get to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. I have no doubt whatsoever that God knows how and God will make everything right in the end. It may be tough here at times. We may suffer persecution from those who are on the outside, but God's going to take care of that. He's going to right the wrongs. But this morning, in order for you to avoid that 
sad day of God's retribution, you're going to have to obey the gospel. Now go ahead and open your songbook now. I want, you, I want your attention to be focused that when we stand and sing this song in a minute, that you are fully aware of what you need to do with an encouragement, an emphasis on if I need to do it, I ought to do it. If you've not yet been baptized for the remission of your sins, here's what God expects from you. He expects you to believe that He is and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. He expects you to look at your sins and be sorry for them to the point where you repent of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. He calls on all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17 verse 30. He wants you to be able to own Him. I mean... Be willing to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as the eunuch did in Acts 8 and verse 37. And then if you study the book of Acts, you find in every instance of conversion, they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Acts 2 verse 38, and in doing so, the Lord added them to his body, the church. That's called obeying the gospel. If you've not done that, there's nothing more important that you will do today than to be baptized. We had one baptized last Sunday. The baptistry is ready behind me. There's garments prepared. You need to do it. You need to do it this morning. It's possible that you as a child of God look at your life and say, you know what? I know if the Lord comes right now in that flaming fire rendering vengeance, I'm going to be on the wrong side and I don't want that. If you need to respond, will you come while we stand and sing?